0: we mm-hmm. look at Grandma's chair.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Glad to see everybody in here today on this Super Bowl Sunday where most of the world is worshiping the football gods. <laughs> we on the other hand have the privilege and honor of serving the one true God. Amen. So The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Romans 8 Verse 6. Today is our communion service. After morning worship, we will take a 10-minute break and we gather when you hear the music. One addendum to that is before everybody leaves, it isn't going to stay. Dale and I are going to be posting a couple of drawings for an addition to the church. And we'd like everybody to kind of gather around and give some input on these drawings because we have to make a decision with the architect on which way to go, and we, would, we really need the input from the, from the body of the church. So if you can just give a couple of minutes to pay attention to that, uh, Dale will go over some of the details of it, and, and uh, uh, that way it gives us a better direction to go. Okay. Uh, number three, the evening services, you all know, are suspended until we get uh, break in the weather, which in Michigan you don't know. The uh, annual business meeting will be this following Wednesday, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, uh, the 12th, 7 p.m., and uh, those of you that have reports, uh, get them ready. Winter Blast is scheduled for February 7th through 9th, flyers posted on the bulletin board, uh, prayer meeting, uh, as usual, Wednesday night at 7 p.m., uh, again, Andrea's our contact number. And we, of course, thank you for the faithfulness of your giving. Uh, Don't forget, uh, if you haven't gotten your envelopes, we've still got them in the foyer there. So please avail yourself to that and uh, we'll go from there. Let's see. Our our, uh, scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Romans, Romans 8, 1 through 8, page 1756 in your pew Bible. you please stand and join us in our opening prayer? Brother Dan Armstrong, would you lead us in our opening prayer, please? standing.
2: Good morning. Good morning. Um, can you all turn to um, 555 in the brown head See? Oh, wait, I don't know. I was oh. I was oh, looking sorry. all over. Sorry. Um, shoot 13 in the breath. Okay. And do you have a reason? Or
0: um, I just <coughs> the words of
2: this a very pleasant reminder that our if you don't have a dead Savior, we
0: have a risen Savior, and that His name, praise and rejoice.
1: reading for this morning is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 68, verses 15 through 24. Would you please stand when you're ready?
3: Psalm 68, starting with verse 15. The mountains of Bashan are majestic mountains. Rugged are the mountains of Bashan. Why gaze in envy, O rugged mountains, at the mountain where God chooses to reign, where the Lord himself will dwell forever? The chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high... You led captives in your train. You received gifts from men. When from the rebellious that you... No, sorry. Even from the rebellious that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign. Lord comes, escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies with the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan, I will bring them from the depths of the sea that you may plunge your feet in the blood of your foes while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your procession has come into view, O God, the procession of my God and King into the sanctuary. ask that the Lord would bless his reading of his word.
2: Please turn to 80 on the trinity.
4: I like my new stool, but it's hard to get into. (laughs) It's one of those that's uh, got the pneumatic. So you sit on it, and it pushes you up. You sit down, and it pushes you back up. But it finally settles down to where it's supposed to be, so there you go. Our text of Scripture is Psalm 68. Love the Psalms, and uh, this is a great psalm dealing with the salvation of the Lord. In our last study together, we consider the uniqueness of Jesus as Savior. And I pointed out, he's the only Savior the world's going to get. So look on, world, all you want, he's it. There's only one salvation. It is life that is found in the life giver, not in idols of stone or idol concepts of people's imaginations. He alone is the Savior. You want to find him? you find find him in the book. We learn a number of things about this salvation that comes from Christ. Number one, that salvation is not a partnership between sinners and God. It is solely of God's grace, which is dispensed to whom he will, and you and I do not get to cut deals with God by our supposed good works. Even the repentance and faith we exhibit in Jesus is God's gift to us so that in the end there's no boasting about our believing. And by the way, I've, I've heard the boast. I'm sure some of you have too. We talk about God's sovereignty and salvation and so forth, and then people say, yeah, but I had to believe, but I had to believe. And they're using that as... God did 99.9% of what is needed to be saved, but I cast the final vote. There's no merit in believing, not when it's the gift of God. I'm pointing out here that Jesus does not share his glorious Savior with us. He's the Savior, not us. Secondly, we learn that salvation is not due to penance, despite what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. No sinner can add to the perfect work of Jesus' sacrifice. If you attempt to pay for your own sin, Paul says, okay, then you will have to keep the whole law, and you will have to keep it perfectly, and when you don't keep it perfectly, there will be failure, and that failure Means that damnation awaits you, not eternal life. When Jesus offered himself to death and relinquished his spirit, the payment that he made for the sin of his people was for past, present, and future. We have a hymn that we sing in our communion service. I love it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Thirdly, we learned that God credited all of our sins to Jesus and all of his righteousness to us. I remember John Raisinger used the expression this is God's great exchange. It's his great exchange. Jesus gets all our sin, we get all of his righteousness. Wow. May I say you'll never be more righteous in the sight of God than you are today if you're a believer. Clean is clean, forgiven is forgiven. Salvation is fixed solidly upon the rock of Christ. And the storms of life cannot shake you loose from that. The tsunamis of the world cannot drown you. Even Satan's treachery cannot change your status with the Lord. I love Luther's hymn, he writes, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. Wow. Luther had it right. Today's message, we want to deal with the fact that God's royal rule in salvation, the incredulity factor that we need to face with mankind, that God's salvation is of his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Bless us as we study today. Pray that you'll give us insight into the truth. Where do we get the truth? It's from your word, it's not from the opinions of men. And I'm praying that I will not be preaching the opinion of me or of any men or any theologian or any church council, but, Lord, that we are preaching and teaching, the, thus saith the Lord. And we don't have to guess at that because your word is truth, you said so. So we can look into your word and find out what salvation is all about. We do not have to guess. Honor Jesus, the great Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're looking at God's royal rule in salvation today. And I'm pointing out, first of all, some incredible factors that relate to all of us and why salvation must be solely of God. Number one, we are hopelessly dead towards God. Have you ever contemplated the tremendous magungus power and spiritual energy required to bring sinners out of spiritual deadness to life, out of blindness to sight, a virtual resurrection must occur. The first Adam drove a stake in our hearts, and the entire race died. The last Adam, Jesus, must not only pull the stake out, he must deal with the decayed tissue and bring about healing and breathe new life into the dead corpse. This is not resuscitation. This is not somebody working with a CPR or a defibrillator as people do in the hospitals at times. This is walking among the tombstones and grave sites of those interred at Metamor and Thornville Cemetery and commanding, live, live! And having those graves open up in the cassock. Caskets yielding living spirits. As David contemplated this truth, he wrote in verse 20 of our text, Our God is a God who says, From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. From our sovereign Lord. If you've ever walked through a cemetery and passed by the crypt, let's say, of a wealthy family, It would be like a little small stone building into which were placed the vaults of various deceased family members. And more than likely there would be some kind of a wrought iron gate and on the gate there would be a secure lock. Well, the lock is not there to keep the dead in. It's there to keep the vandals out. The dead are contained within the necessity of no lock. They're contained because the absence of life is the lock. They're going nowhere under their own power. I know it. You know it. That is the reference to death. Well, guess what? This is the picture the Bible paints when Paul talks about us being dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Or again, when speaking of the pleasure-seeking woman in 1 Timothy 5, 6, as being dead while she lives. It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But he's dealing with physical life and spiritual death in that one verse. Again, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. To which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparable great power for us who believe. And that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead. And seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realm far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Ephesians 1, verse 18 and following. Now everyone has the concept that when a person dies physically, it is virtually impossible to restore them to life short of a divine miracle. There are accounts, by the way, in the Bible and rightly so, of dead people being resurrected to life, and in every incident, in every incident, it was demonstrated that such an event occurred by nothing less than divine intervention. Classic example, I think, I might be at, at the tomb of Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha. He became ill while Jesus was out of the country. By the time Jesus had returned, the funeral had already taken place and Lazarus had been entombed for four days. When Jesus commanded the mourners to remove the stone that gated the sepulcher, Martha protested. She said, but Lord, by this time there's a bad odor. For he has been there four days. John 11, verse 39. By the way, that's very significant because the Jewish theology taught that if a person were dead three days, they were within the realm of resuscitation. God could raise them up. But four days, eh, too bad. No resuscitation possible. So we have here in this account the statement of four days and it's not accidental. It's like saying, don't you know that it is impossible for this Lazarus guy to come forth from the grave. Dead is dead. He's gone. You have to deal with it. Nothing can be done. And when Martha said that, I would have to say she was absolutely right. She was right. Nothing by men could be done. Even with our most knowledgeable paramedics of today who possess the latest high-tech equipment and training and defibrillators and all of that wonderful stuff, nothing could be done. Four days, dead is dead. Might as well let the dead man rest in peace. But Jesus refused to leave it there. Instead, he challenged Martha, saying, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? John 11, verse 40. In other words, you would see a demonstration of God's glory. Now, he had told her earlier, and let me read it for you. Martha, I am the resurrection (laughs) and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. John 11 verse 25. God can do the impossible. Jesus is saying, I'm God. I can do the impossible. Now what does it mean to be spiritually dead? When we come to the idea of being spiritually death and the need for spiritual resurrection to occur, an incredulity sets in on us. We can agree wholeheartedly with Martha when she raises her, the whole question of hopelessness in raising her dead brother from the tomb. Because we have stood by the grave sites of our deceased loved ones and have been overwhelmed with the reality, may I say, the finality of death. We are convinced that all the prayers in the world will not result in them coming out of the grave. We understand this about death in general. But what about spiritual death? Well, firstly, we're not sure of the definition. And secondly, we believe that the word death as used with regard to the soul, cannot have the same incapacity and finality as it does when we say so-and-so died this week and the funeral is on Tuesday. In other words, what do we mean when we say someone is spiritually dead? Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions, and sins, Ephesians two verse one. In other words, you are were entombed in a state of sin and transgression from which there is no escape. Verse two, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Again, made alive. Okay, but it means you were dead before, and now you have been made alive. Or in the Colossians text, Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul writes, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins. So being dead spiritually has something to do with ongoing sin for which there has been no forgiveness. Again, he writes, the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. 1 Timothy 5, verse 6. Oh, really? She's got mobility. She's got agility physically. But he says she's still dead. Hmm. So we've got a death that's being talked about that's different. Jesus said to John, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. These are strange comparisons, aren't they? Revelation 3 verse 1. Spiritually dead people in the church where spiritual life abounds in God's true people. The church of Sardis had some dead people there. Dead while they lived. Hmm. To be spiritually dead means to be dead towards God, dead towards godliness, alive towards sin. Alive towards breaking the holy law of God by nature, by our sinful nature. That being our preference, our choice. Now just so I can hammer this home a little bit, because it's a concept that uh, is not even taught in Protestant churches today. And I say that because in most churches it's people are presented with the gospel as God has done all that He has, it can do for you to save you, but you have to do the final, you have to cast the final vote. They might not quite say it that way, uh, but they'll say something like, you have to believe, or you have to repent and believe, something of that nature. Let me give you six characteristics of spiritual deadness. Six characteristics. Some of these or all of these apply to every person. Number one, being religious but not transformed spiritually. I think the Pharisees are a good example of this. They were rabbis who taught theology to the Jewish in the Jewish synagogues and schools. They actively sought converts to Judaism and they would travel even out of country to do so. They had a missionary spirit. They prayed openly and often in the marketplace. Jesus says so. They were scripture oriented. In fact, they took scripture verses and wrote them down on little pieces of parchment, put them in leather pouches, and then taped or uh, tied the pouches on their forehead. Now, listen to how they're thinking about this. Wherever I walk, I'm under the authority of the Word of God. That's how physical, how carnally they thought about what it meant to be subject to the Word of God. Well, I got my phylacteries, that's what they were called, on my forehead, wherever I go. They tithed their material possessions right down to the herbs in their garden. Who does that? They donated the proceeds of that tithe to the temple. They studied the Bible and could quote Moses' writings in particular. Yet for all this religious fervor, Jesus said of them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And everything unclean. Wow. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and Wickedness. Wow. Matthew 23, verse 27-28. In other words, like the church of Sardis, they had a reputation for being alive spiritually when they were really dead. Secondly, there was a nitpicking on minor spiritual issues while missing the greater Good. Again, Jesus, speaking of them, said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former You blind guides, you strain out the gnat, but you swallow the camel. Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24. What is he saying? He's saying the spiritually dead major in the minors. Because they're trying to show how fastidious they are in their religious duty. How detailed. Look how detailed I am. The Lord talks about tithing. Well, I want you to know that I tithe right down to the herbs in my garden. Third characteristic, they know the law of God, but not the God of the law. Instead, they use the law like a club to criticize others. But they do not obey it themselves. Again, Jesus says now, <clears throat> if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed in the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the, those That are blind, and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, uh, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who have o'er idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Romans 2, verse 17 and following. These were book learning theologians, book learning principles. But they were not putting the things known to practice. And that indicated their spiritual death. Jesus put it this way. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They do. So you must obey and do everything they tell you. In other words, their teaching was okay. But, (laughs) Jesus went on to say, Do not do what they do. For they... Do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. Wow, isn't that scary? It's possible to preach the truth, to use the scriptures to confirm the truth, and yet not be a follower of the very things that you teach. So, of course, that's hypocrisy. But worse than that, it's a sign of death. No spiritual life there. The fourth trait of spiritual deadness is pursuit of the world, the pleasures of the flesh, and a disdain for righteousness. Again Paul in Romans says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 5 and 5. He's describing people dead towards God. Would never think of doing what Moses did. That is. A person who had become a prince of Egypt. And had all of the treasures. And yet in the end. Rejected the affair of being adopted as Pharaoh's son. Left Egypt. Left the wealth left the power that he might follow God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, by faith Moses when he had grown up, took him a while, but when he had grown up he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hebrews 11, 24 and 5. In other words, he renounced the world. He turned away from all the fleshly allurements that Egypt could provide. That he might align himself with God and his people. Fifthly, those dead towards God do not understand spiritual truth, but ridicule it as being foolish and unimportant. Again, Paul writes, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Or again, he writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following. The world just doesn't get it doesn't understand why Moses would leave the treasures of Egypt, to go out into the desert and align himself with a people that were hated and despised and were former slaves of that very Egyptian culture. Don't get it. they don't get. Six number six. There's an ability to see the sins of others, yes, but blind to their own sin and unable to promote the teachings of God over the traditions of men. Jesus put it this way, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. You know, what what you put in, that's not what makes you unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he replied, Every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Just leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit." And Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, said Jesus. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander... These are what make a man unclean. These are what makes him unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Matthew 15, verse 11 and 20. They were all into their traditions. All into their optional viewpoints. Not realizing that they weren't following the word of God, but their own ideas. So all of this, as a result, shows the necessity for God's resurrection power. How are you going to get people who are dead like this, and are characterized by these uh, traits, how are you going to get them alive towards God? Well, it's going to require God's resurrection power, isn't it? Because they are dead without feeling it. You talk to a person about being dead towards God and they won't even know what you're talking about. I hope I've convinced you from the Bible that the scriptures do describe and do define such a thing as being spiritually dead. Dead. Dead towards God. As we've been learning with regard to guilt and guilt feelings, guilt is firstly objective. Having to do with real sin, a real breach of God's law. So feelings of guilt are subjective and may relate to real or imaginary sin. But the same goes for the reality of being dead towards God. Before the spirit's regeneration, which is in resurrection, deadness is a reality whether you feel it to be so or not. You know, we're such a feely, touchy uh, society that it's easy for us to dismiss anything that is not supported by our emotions. Consider a football coach. We're going to talk football today today with the Super Bowl, but at halftime, he talks to his team, which is behind 21 to three. But instead of dealing with the reality that the offensive line of the opposing team consists of people six foot four inches tall and weighs 275 pounds each, they're creaming the small guys on his team He opts to give his team a pep talk. Well, you might be small, but you're mighty. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. The race is not to the swift and to the strong, but to the slow and steady. What do you say, man? We are invincible. Can you feel it? Can you see it? Are you with me? And there's some under the breath mumbling or complete silence. Why? Because feeling you will win is not the same as knowing those plays and strategies and having those abilities that will assure the victory. Folks feeling that you are alive and can respond aright to, to God in the gospel is like this coach giving his pep talk, has no reality and objective truth. Unless the coach admits that his men need to rethink their position and make radical changes, his team is going to get pounded into the ground by these big giants on the other side of the line. But the spiritually dead are more desperate than that. Why? Because they cannot even challenge the strategies. Worse, they don't see the need to do so. The will isn't there. The want to isn't there. It's headed in a different direction. And there is no fuel in the tank to go the distance. The dead, if you're dead, you just rot in the grave. That's what dead people do. They cannot resuscitate themselves. They will go the way of all sinners unless and until God intervenes. They're dead even though they feel they're alive. So what has to happen? God has to make them alive without affecting it the spiritually dead do not need a pep talk they do not need a coach to tell them how to change what they do they need resurrection they need life what does our text say psalm 68 verse 19 and 20 praise be to the lord to god our savior who daily bears our burdens Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Psalm 68 verse 20. Jesus put it this way. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. John 5, verse 21. Spiritual life which results in eternal life is the exclusive work of the Sovereign Lord. Again, Jesus put it, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. John 10 verse 27 and following. Or again just a few chapters later. John 17. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, verse 2, verse 3. We have the example that at the preaching of the gospel by Paul and Barnabas, there was a mixed reaction. The scripture says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they talked Abusively against what Paul was saying. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it. And do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. That you may bring salvation. To the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this. They were glad. And they honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life. Believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Acts 13 verse 45 and following. Now understand here. At Pisidian Antioch. Paul taught the Jews. And the God fearing Gentiles. In the synagogue concerning. Jesus Christ, he taught about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Both groups, the Gentiles and the Jews, both groups heard the same preachers, Paul and Barnabas. Both heard the same identical message. Both were present at the same meeting and heard the message together. That is to say, they were in the same environment. Both heard copious references To the Old Testament scriptures. Showing God's prediction of Jesus' work and ministry. Both had the same opportunity to follow Paul and Barnabas. After adjournment to ask their questions. Both were citizens of Antioch. Could have invited their friends to hear the next lecture. Come Sabbath day. So what we have here is same, same, same. With everything being the same, humanly speaking. So why the mixed reaction? Why did the Jewish constituency of the group talk abusively against? That's what Luke writes that they did. They talked abusively against what Paul and Barnabas were teaching. Acts 13, verse 45. Verse 46 says, they rejected the gospel. While the Gentiles, the Greeks present, were glad about the message and it says, honored the word of the Lord. This is phenomenal when you think about it. In a group consisting of same, 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 all of a sudden we have different The Jews, who had the advantage of possessing and knowing the scriptures, speak abusively against the gospel. They reject it. While the Greeks, with whom the scriptures were not as familiar, gladly received the gospel and we are told honored the word. So I ask the question, what? Or who made the difference? Luke, writing of the Gentiles in the group, says this All who were appointed for eternal life believed. There's the difference. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Brethren, eternal life is God's gift by appointment. And so all the means necessary to receive it are God's gift as well as the repentance and faith to believe. David knew this. He taught this when he wrote, Our God is a God who saves from the sovereign Lord, comes escape from death. From the sovereign Lord. Psalm 68, verse 20. In Romans 9, Paul actually quotes God. Paul writes, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on, God's, on man's desire or effort, on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Romans 9, 15 and 16. If you're alive spiritually this morning, you are so without effecting it. Spiritual life is a work of mercy of the sovereign God. Now, if you're with me to this point, even as an unbeliever, you can see that in the final analysis, eternal life does not depend on you, but upon the will of the sovereign Lord, in whom alone is the escape from death, says David. While there's nothing you can do to influence God's decision on life eternal, let me say that you can beg for mercy if your pride will let you do it. I say if. It is the difference between the jealous Jews who spoke abusively against the gospel that Paul preached and the humble Gentiles who were just thrilled that Paul had come to their town With such good news. Sinners may I say. Especially religious sinners. Religious sinners. Do not want to hear. That all of their fastidious. Obedience to the moral principles. Of the law of God. Count for nothing. They don't want to hear that. They disdain mercy. They hate grace. Because it places everyone on the same plane. Think about it. The prostitute is on the same place with the theologian. Oh, she needs mercy. Well, guess what? You need mercy. Oh, I don't like that. It places the ignorant and the unlearned with the college graduate and the doctor of philosophy. It gives no recognition to position, no recognition to privilege. Well, I was raised in the church. We're all on the same plane. We're lost sinners. We need life granted to us by God. And, brethren, Jesus died for sinners who, by that sin, were dead towards God. He is sovereign through it all. And our hope, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. (laughs) Think about this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. But the sick. Go and learn what this means. He's still speaking. I'm reading his words. Go learn what this means. I, says God, desire mercy. Not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners. Matthew 9 verse 12 and 13. Jesus here is disclosing the wish of his heart. The desire of his heart is not to withhold mercy, but to extend it to all who call out. Who call out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Luke 18, verse 13. May God hear and answer your prayer this morning. If that's the case, he'll give you life without you affecting it. It's his gift. If you'll cry out for his mercy. Our Father, we thank you for your word today and praise you for it. If it were, if salvation were left up to us, we would not be saved. None of us would be saved. We'll always find a way to turn away from God. Your standard is too high. We can't match up to the perfection. So we always find a way of dumbing down the requirements. But we see in the scripture, you don't dumb down anything. Instead, you place your son right on the very path that's going to require perfect submission. That's going to pay the penalty for sin. Wages of sin is death. So he's going to pay that penalty for all who will trust him. And there's no other way. There's no way around this. Would God sacrifice his own son if there were another way? If we, by our puny little means, could save ourselves? No, it's going to require the perfect and sinless sacrifice of God's very own Son as a stand-in, as He will stand in our place and take your judgment, O oh God, upon Himself. Wilt we'll must trust Him to have done that for us. Wow what great love that was. Not only on the part of the God the Father, but also on the part of God the Son to come and the Holy Spirit to enable him to go all the way to the cross. Forgive us for putting other things in front of God and his grace as a means of salvation. There is no other way and through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. We thank you for such great a sacrifice today, and bless thee for it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn from Trinity, the Red Hymnal, number 470. Four seventy. 70. take a 10-minute break and then regather when you hear the music for our communion service and then that'll be our closing service for today so 10-minute break listen for the music